0: Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint
1: at radiovermont.com. Good morning and welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis and thanks for joining us on this Friday, August 11th. We will discuss the ongoing saga of flood recovery today followed by a cameo appearance on this show for the first time, at least for me, by the great Roger Hill, the WDEV weatherman, and so much more. Uh, we want to talk to Roger about what is happening with the weather. Beyond the headlines, beyond the scare tactics, beyond uh, the superficial, we want to get down deep with Roger about why it's raining so much, why it's flooding, uh, we'll talk about what ha- what's going on in uh, in Hawaii uh, and across the world, uh, and I know Rogers leading this trip to Antarctica. So I thought it would I thought it would be a great opportunity to really dig into the weather because that's all anybody's talking about in my life. Uh, it, I wasn't home yesterday when this happened, but a massive, quick rainstorm happened uh, yesterday, and uh, boy, it is. It is soaked uh, to the ground. So we'll get into that with Roger Hill. We will go to Washington, D.C. to talk about all things politics with Bob Ney. We'll get an update on the Trump indictment case. And I suspect we'll also talk about – I'd like to talk to him about this Iran hostage deal that is in the works and was announced uh, this week. We'll visit with Seven Days reporter Derek Brower about a Montpelier business called the Quirky Pet, which I know pretty well – Uh, That has decided to reopen. But uh, I love the story because Derek talks to uh, the two owners, husband and wife, about at their kitchen table uh, about their currently closed uh, business. And the the couple kind of plays out in front of uh, the reporter, the decision to reopen. Uh, The husband says, you know, it makes financially no sense whatsoever. And, but she basically says, this is my dream. This is what gets me going in the morning. And I'm going to do this. And, uh, and it plays out in the pages of seven days. And I thought uh, it was worth having Derek on to talk about that. Uh, we will open the phones and talk about lots of other issues at 1030 uh, to take your questions, comments, complaints, and of course, your love notes about uh, this show. The number to call is 244-1777. You can email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. And, of course, you're listening to us live on the radio on AM 550, FM 96.1, and a bunch of others. You can listen also live online at wdevradio.com. That's a good one. And on the free WDEV Radio app, You'll remember that, uh, we broadcast, uh, last Wednesday, a week ago, from downtown Montpelier in the field. And we did the same thing in downtown Barry at Nelson's Hardware, uh, this, uh, a th- couple of days ago. And that was a real eye-opener. Um, and, uh, it, you know, we, we, we were in the lobby at Bob's at, at Nelson's Hardware and, uh, It's really something we we heard from Tom Lozon, the former mayor, uh, another city council woman, um, and we heard from various businesses. One of the real eye-openers for me was the kitty – the owner of the Kitty Corner Cafe who does – serves food and also shelters cats. And Alexis Dexter, the owner, uh, told me she's determined to reopen – and uh, she sheltered, uh, as the floodwaters were uh, rising, she sheltered what she said 57 cats in shelter homes, foster homes around central Vermont, and she's preparing to bring them back. But uh, that was quite something. Uh, last night, 500 people showed up to a community meeting in Montpelier to express, to vent, and to share ideas for how to redesign the city in the wake of the flood. Uh, 350 of them were live in the, in the old gym at the, the renovated gym at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. Uh, 250 people showed up on Zoom and, uh, professional facilitator Paul Costello facilitated the meeting. I was there. Uh, it, there hasn't been a lot of news coverage about it thus far, but let me, let me play reporter for you for a minute. I, I must say what stood out, uh, this was a three hour community meeting. At which uh, people were invited. There was a there was a rough agenda. Uh, the, the The entire political power structure, business establishment um, uh, of Montpelier was there. Uh, philanthropists were there. The city council was there. I, I was struck by the fact that uh, there was no one from the federal congressional delegation, and I did not see a state government official there with the exception of state commerce secretary, Lindsay Curley, who, uh, you know, props to her. She shows up everywhere. And, uh, you know, government took a bit of a beating yesterday. The city of Montpelier was criticized for not reacting fast enough for not having an emergency plan, uh, for not notifying residents uh, fast enough about the rising floodwaters. Uh, and, Oh, state government got some criticism. It was predictable, but, uh, I gotta hand it to Secretary Curley. She's there. She's showing up and she's talking to people. She's got a smile on her face and she's answering questions. Uh, she's the one who was behind the establishment of the governor's, uh, uh, $20 million, uh, bridge funding proposal. And, uh, you know, she cares about Montpelier, uh, like the rest of us. Um, I, the other thing that stood out for me was the trauma and emotion that went through that room. Uh, Lauren Parker, uh, the owner of the North Branch Nature Center, which which sits on the North Branch of the Winooski River, she said something I think that I didn't expect and no one else expected. She said, you know, I'm open, I'm serving food, and uh, it's really lonely down here. And she urged people to come down and uh, and and talk to each other. Um, she her basement flooded, but most of her basement is stone and granite, and therefore she didn't suffer the damage that most other people did. And uh, Lauren was just saying it's really lonely down here. Um, uh, Uber volunteer uh, Peter Walk, he who is a former deputy secretary of natural resources, uh, he. He stood up and uh, paid tribute to all the kids and all the young young people that volunteered to help muck out basements. Uh, that got a huge cheer. Uh, the there's going to be an argument about uh, uh, dredging the river, and it's coming. You can see it, and uh, I, I really hope this doesn't break down between sort of the predictable environmentalists, the quote environmentalists, versus the the sort of, quote, business community where the businesses want to dredge the river, the environmentalists are accused of not wanting to dredge the river to protect the fish. I think there's a middle ground here, and uh, I'll I'll have a guest on to talk about it. We could probably have Natural Resources Secretary Julie Moore on to talk about it again. Uh, but it's pretty clear what's going on here is that we humans – have encroached on this river to build our lives and our economy the problem with that is that we have sort of squeezed the river over the decades so that it gets narrower and narrower and has no and so that when it does rain and when it does flood it has nowhere to go so where it where, well it will go it's going to go and 200 years ago, we didn't have a lot of these buildings along Memorial Drive in Montpelier. We didn't have a lot of these state office buildings. So one of the proposals that got the biggest round of applause, which which uh, was interesting to me, was that Montpelier High School, which exists in the floodplain and was flooded, a uh, young woman got up and said, we need to close Montpelier High School and move the high school up to, uh, well, her proposal was to move it right up there to the Vermont College of Fine Arts. Uh, I think that's a non-starter because I think those buildings are spoken for, but it could revive the age-old discussion about whether to move Montpelier High School up to U32. I know that that is, uh, so many people have pride in Montpelier High School. I do. It's a walking high school, Uh, but It isn't a floodplain and it makes, it's, it makes some sense to let the river overflow its banks and just use the Montpelier High School, uh, grounds as a kind of a a flood receptor. It can turn into a park. It can turn into a wetland. Uh, these are some of the hard decisions we're going to have to face as, because as, uh, as my friend Paul Bofa said to kick off the meeting, we have to keep an open mind and as we figure out how to redesign this city for the future because we know this is going to happen again, and we're going to have to uh, – some of the houses that flooded on Elm Street, they should not be rebuilt, and those are going to be very difficult conversations, uh, pe- asking people to give up where they live. But they're going to flood again and again. The Wrightsville Reservoir. We've got to make some changes to the apparently to the controls up there. Uh, but it was clear at this meeting that this can be done. The Dutch have been doing it forever. Uh, other cities in this country and, and across the world in Europe and elsewhere have done have done this. Uh, they deal with the water. We have the space to let this river go where it's going to go. Uh, architect Greg Gossen spoke about that. Um, so uh, all notes were taken from this meeting. There will be another a second community meeting on August 22nd at the state house and the house chamber. And uh, all these notes will be taken from both meetings. Uh, there'll be a, a list made of all the proposals. Uh, and I think people are going to break up into into sessions. This was sponsored by, this new entity called Vermont Strong, which is a combination of the nonprofit Montpelier Alive and the Montpelier Foundation. The Montpelier Foundation is a philanthropic uh, nonprofit in, in the city uh, that has pivoted to focus on flood relief. And Montpelier Alive is, is – if there's a Nobel Peace Prize for local work, it should probably go to Montpelier Alive, which has stepped up, created a hub – of uh, energy and volunteerism in downtown Montpelier, uh, with tents, water bottles, Clorox bleach, etc. Supplies, and uh, and just just good cheer for everyone suffering so much. Uh, last thing before we take a break, this is not over by any means. These business owners are traumatized. The homeowners are traumatized. Uh, we did our show, as I said, from Nelson's Hardware in Barry. And uh, I've never seen uh, Tom Lozon, the former mayor of Barry, who's a pretty tough guy. Uh, he uh, His lip was quivering uh, about all of this. People in Barry are suffering. Uh, people all over the region are suffering. And this is not going to go away. This is a long haul. And so uh, – Let's take a break, and, and and after we come back, we're going to have Roger Hill, our WDEV weatherman, because we want to talk about the details of why this is all happening. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, your host, and you're listening to the friendly pioneer, WDEV. We're back. Uh, before we go to Roger Hill, we're going to take a call uh, from Rama in Williamstown. Rama, welcome to the show
2: thanks. I'll be real quick. Just two points I want to make, and then I'll get out of the way here. But regarding the uh, Montpelier High School and moving it thing now, don't forget you've got a new variable in there called Roxbury. And, you know, I'm not saying that with any idea how things would be decided or not. But I think that adds a new dimension as to whether you go to a place like U-32 or somewhere else.
1: Boy, it sure does. That's a great point. I had not thought of that.
2: And the other thing is, I hope, is it's not only how do you deal with the floods as we've experienced them now. This is getting to the Montpelier and how do you readjust how development around there. But it's also these floods are going to get worse by all expectations. So it's it's a matter of designing for the future and not designing for what we've experienced, in my opinion. So thanks. I'll get out of the way. On to Roger.
1: Okay. Rama, thanks for the call. So... We welcome the great weatherman Roger Hill to the show. Roger, welcome.
3: I'm always embarrassed when that uh, that introduction happens like that, but uh, I'm here. How do you <laughs> do?
1: Okay. Uh, I, I as I said, it rained again at my house in East Montpelier. Um, it's raining like crazy. Uh, it's rained and rained and rained. The flooding in Montpelier, Barry, Johnson, Hardwick, uh, then a sort of a phase two in Middlebury, Rutland. Storo Drive in Boston was underwater. Uh, I guess the question, Globe, let's start sort of big picture here. What is going on?
3: Well, we're um, seeing the effects of uh, a heating process of the planet. Our climate is heating up, and it's making for different weather systems, and that their positions to be either stuck or moving f- more frequently over one particular area, and that might mean a big heat dome sitting over one particular part of the country, like Texas or the desert Southwest, or the Gulf Coast. Uh, it might mean that we have a kind of a locked up uh, trough or uh, area of low pressure up around Hudson Bay, Canada, during summer, and that is much stronger than it usually is in summer. And its position causes an influx of the heat dome moisture to sort of work its way northward along a sort of the edge. We call this kind of the ring of fire. And then we get these periodic setups of either heavy rains or frequent showers and thunderstorms. And with a heated planet, the atmosphere holds more water. And the combination of all of that leads to Flooding and torrential rainfall. Um, if it happens very frequently, the area gets flooded. If it doesn't happen at all, the area has drought. And this is going on all over the planet, northern and southern hemisphere. Now,
1: Roger, could you explain? Let's let's get down into the details of the weather because most of us we listen to you or we're watching CNN or whatever, and we get the we get the surface. But let's dig down into why this is happening. Why why does a warming climate produce rainfall or drought? What What's going on in the atmosphere exactly, scientifically?
3: Well, there was a great paper that came out in 2011, um, Jennifer Francis, uh, Steve Arvris, uh, PhDs, and they attributed squirrely jet streams, oddball jet streams, and higher amplitude flow, bigger ridges of higher pressure, bigger blocking areas of higher pressure, and uh, also uh, the opposite side, uh, bigger troughs of lower pressure that go deep down into the tropics and then scoop up tropical air and spread it north. Meanwhile, in the winter times, we're seeing cold Arctic air be de- placed, or displaced out of the uh, the poles and then pushed uh, in the eastern side of North America, and we could still be under the gun for that. So in the large-scale picture here, it's uh, kind of attributed to the loss of sea ice up in the Arctic, um, also in the Antarctic, uh, same thing is going on, loss of sea ice. And these things are happening on much faster timescales uh, than geology or ge- geologic timescales.
1: So when so. you – okay, so loss of sea ice. Now, I can understand that. Uh, it, it, in my simplistic way of thinking about it, a loss of sea ice raises sea levels, but then I get lost. What, what, what happens because of loss of sea ice?
3: Well – correct you, the sea ice, if it's a floating uh, shield of ice, that doesn't raise the sea level. It just melts out and warms helps to warm it up more. Okay. Earth. But uh, glaciers and all of the landmass ice, now that, blow, that goes into the oceans, and that is raising sea levels. But the energy, um, because of extra carbon in the atmosphere, it causes those molecules to dance and generate heat. And when you generate the heat, uh, most of that energy goes into the oceans about something like 94, 5, 6 percent, and that raises the ocean water temperatures, sea surface temperatures. Those sea surface temperatures then undercut into the Arctic, which then melts the ice. When you melt a lot of ice, you have different configurations in the jet stream, and those different configurations in the jet stream have a tendency to, to be very high-amplitude flow, meaning there's not a lot of wiggles or the wiggles are not the little daily wiggles that you see basically in the weather like we're experiencing today. But the bigger wiggles, the high amplitude flow, causes larger ridges of higher pressure, which then are surrounded on either side by bigger, stronger troughs of lower pressure. What ends up happening is these waves, these amplitude waves, they get stuck. And when they get stuck in one particular position, the tendency is you get a you know, many, many weather systems pushing in um, uh, over one particular area, and hence that's how it's been through really most of the month of July and going back into really the uh, first week of August.
1: So I, I'm sorry to be repetitive, but so what exactly is cause, caused all that rain that, that flooded Montpelier, Barry, and surrounding central Vermont?
3: we had a very super juiced up air mass. And typically when you have these heat gnomes in the southern part of the uh, US, on the edge you have this thing called the ring of fire. And it's basically, uh, it's like a big bubble. If you look at the two bubbles next to each other, there's kind of this sort of uh, line, uh, this wall or, or whatever. And we've been kind of experiencing right into the wall. There's been this high latitude blocking area of higher pressure up to the far north in the Arctic. And that's kind of caused the jet stream to be displaced southward. Combined with that super-duper heat dome that is off to the south of us, that sort of in-between zone, if you will, has been locked in. And so each little weather system, little wiggle, or what we call a shortwave-type trough, that basically picks up that moisture that's to the south of us, pushes it north, and each time it moves through, we're going to get showers and thunderstorms. And that's what we're experiencing last night. That's what we're experiencing, going to experience on Saturday. And there was even a couple bona fide, you know, soakers that worked on through that didn't have a lot of thunderstorm activity, something that's very unusual to see basically in July. And again, the reasons for that is that higher latitude blocking. The reason for the higher latitude blocking is likely connected very much to the loss of sea ice up in the Arctic.
1: Roger, is this going to keep happening?
3: Yes. We have warmed the planet, and we're continuing to warm it by adding more fossil fuel. Um, that chemistry is making for more warming of the oceans, which is heating up the ice, which then in turn is causing these high-amplitude flows, which then can lock up from time to time. The question is, it's um, some people refer to it as uh, the climate casino, um, is your number up, or are we going to see next year You know, during the summer, are we going to see the opposite? And that is high pressure that's going to basically cause all the storms to either go around us to the north, to the west, or to the south, or to the east, and then we undergo drought. Now, we've had a few of those uh, in recent years, so it's a, it's kind of this back-and-forth variability. But here in the northeast United States and adjacent Canada, it's really flooding is the name of the game. And so a lot of the extreme weather events associated with climate change and what we are receiving is really more associated for us, at least with floods and less drought and, you know, wildfires and that kind of thing. Although we've seen the wildfire smoke, and that is also part of the same configurations of the jet stream where areas have undergone um, significant drought up in the boreal forest in northern Quebec and back all the way to British Columbia. So... These are all parts and pieces, if you will, to a larger puzzle that has to do with the loss of sea ice, and that's all part and parcel to the fact that we've uh, put so much carbon in the planet that those molecules are dancing and they're generating heat.
1: Okay. I have a New York Times article in front of me uh, by the climate reporter for the New York Times that says that the heat and the climate is, is causing the loss of billions and billions of dollars in worker productivity around the world. Uh, Amazon crews are going on strike uh, because of the heat. And, and uh, she, she found in her reporting that many of the factories that make school everything from school buses to whatever around this country are actually not air-conditioned. And she says that's going to be a massive uh, emerging new issue. You know, are these businesses going to have to spend what she calls hundreds of millions of dollars to air condition their factories? Uh, this is just one of the things that, they, they, uh, that are beginning to pop up. I know I'm installing a generator uh, at my house in East Montpelier. Roger, what, what other results do you see from this kind of weather? Uh, affect, how is it affecting the way we live?
3: Well, in the sort of the near-term time scales, uh, let's say the next decade or two, we really have to um, begin to – we we should be mitigating the problem that is um, stopping the source that's causing the problem, which is extra carbon. And that's more of a future thing, because already built into the system for the next two or three or four decades, uh, the planet will continue to warm, and until eventually um, there's less carbon, then things will start to turn back the other way. Um but in the near term, it's really flooding. It's really that many of our Vermont towns are along uh, stream beds, rivers, creeks, tributaries. And we need to, I would probably underline floodplains as the number one uh, thing to do about that. We need to put value in floodplains simply because, let's just put it this way, everybody who is driven from Montpelier to Marshfield, Vermont, uh, especially between Plainfield and Marshfield, you have the R- Winooski River, the tributary on the, on the right side there as you're driving toward Marshfield. And those are all floodplains. And when the water's too high, the the, the floodplains take that water. Um, it gets a little bit trickier, of course, in areas that are built up in villages and towns and certainly like the city of Montpelier, even the city of Waterbury, et cetera, Berry itself. Um, all these rivers uh, are going to experience more flooding. But if you can put value into the floodplains and work with that, there will be a better way to sort of, shall we say, surf nature or surf with nature rather than opposing it and abutting it. And if you take a walk out in the woods with all the flooding, I had almost 15 inches of rainfall in the month of July. If you took a walk out in the woods, you would notice that, well, it looks pretty much like it always did. I mean, there might be a few more puddles, a few more, uh, um, you know, uh, areas that, that are wet, wet, wetter areas, wetlands or whatever, um, temporary. But uh, overall, nature can handle a lot of this. Nature can absorb it. We need to figure out a way to copy nature, and floodplains is, is one of those ways. So when floods happen in marsh field to plain field, the, the floodplains take up that water, and that's part of, uh, you know, the the best way to go about this, in my opinion. Um, the other things, of course, we're going to have to rethink, you know, basements and in, in, in our cities and, and villages that get flooded, or at least plan on having, uh, uh, try to anticipate them when we have flooding rains, because we more than likely will have many more to come, and we'll just have to figure out a way, like, not to put your all of your uh, heating um, and cooling and whatnot in your basement, that's going to get flooded out. We have to rethink that and plan on more flooding rather than just think, okay, let's just go back to normal and this will never happen again because it will happen again. It'll happen probably sooner than you think.
1: We're going to go to the phones because we have a long traffic jam on the phones. We're going to start with the former host of the show, Rick Singer. Rick, welcome to the show.
4: Hey. Much. outstanding show. I am just captivated this morning. A um, couple things. First I want, I hate to do this, but a quick correction, um, and it happens. You mentioned um, that Lauren is the owner of the North Branch Nature Center. She has the wonderful shop on State Street, the North Branch Cafe, and so make sure people know that and go and support her. Uh, she's doing beautiful things there. But I want to just say, first of all, Kevin, you going last night to the um, meeting in Montpelier and um, letting us know about what was discussed there is fabulous. Well done on your part. And your message about um, uh, making sure, if they're talking about dredging, that the answer is probably somewhere in the middle between what environmentalists or those um, who support business um would think there is an answer in the middle. You know, Montpelier and Barrie downtowns are gems and we support them. We love going there. We love taking uh, tourists there when they come to visit us. Without those wonderful businesses, we're in trouble as a state. So uh, let's find the answer. And like you said, Kevin, it's somewhere in the middle. And last, I've heard Roger explain climate change dozens of times but now with the relevance of what happened just recently uh it was it was fabulous Roger you explaining it to us again and this time it had such meaning so thank you very much
1: Rick, thank you for the call. Uh, God, I cannot – I will apologize to Lauren Parker. Actually, I'm going to go there after the show, and I can't believe I called her the North Branch Nature Center. That is terrible. She runs the North Branch Cafe. Um, Okay, let's go to another call. Forbes from Corinth, you are on the line. Welcome to the show.
5: All right. Thank you, Kevin. Listen, this is a great program, and whatever you do, don't drop it today. Uh, This is pretty essential, the whole, whole issue. I spoke with two uh, two businesses I deal with in in Barry, and both of them said they are not going to reopen and I asked them why, and they said because this is going to happen again, so whatever we do and whatever the conversations are we've got to we've got to stay apprised of that because that that's the economic uh, engine of any community also Barry serves uh about a 20-mile radius. It isn't just Barry. And a lot of towns depend upon it, services, uh, medical or whatever it might be. So whatever you do, I, I applaud you for the discussion on this subject, and please don't drop it. Okay. Oh, well, thank you.
1: Thank you, Forbes. Uh, we promise not to drop it. Let's take one more call before we get back into detail with Roger from possibly my favorite caller, Marsha from Barry. Welcome to the show.
4: Morning guys. I have a question about El, El Niño and La, and La Niña which I know were an an influence in this year. And in the 50s we, we never heard of them on who, with from weather people. And I was wondering if they were just discovered from data in the International Geophysical Year in 1960 and from satellites and just how just how did they come about being a factor in the weather thank you
3: roger sure uh we're going into uh an el nino we've been going into this el nino since uh oh, about the past three to six months i guess and we came out of a three years of la nina it's opposite cousin what is el nino it's a uh, it's something that has been naturally occurring uh in the oceans in the subtropical pacific ocean off of ecuador uh that spreads uh, it's kind of a an area of super warmed up water uh this super warmed up water then reconfigures the jet stream in such ways that it affects the whole planet's weather and it's uh in the you know the pacific which is a pretty large ocean um, the la nina is the cool phase The El Nino is the warm phase. And when it's in its warmer phase, when you put anthropogenic climate change and warming, you get that extra punch upward. And that's kind of what we're experiencing right now. The Earth is about 1.15 degrees Celsius warmer than baseline. Um, We've been trying to keep the planetary temperature below 1.5, but with this El Nino, we're headed for probably 1.5 and at 1.5 degrees Celsius above baseline temperature in pre-industrial age, you start to experience these extra tipping points and all this extreme weather. We're living through the extreme weather here in Vermont and we've had the flooding. Um, When we have an El Nino, that helps that it's a natural variation that will bump that up and cause crazy weather around the world and indeed it is right now. We've heard about the floods in China, the, the fires in Lahaina that burn Lahaina, Maui, Hawaii down, are also related to a lack of rainfall in the Hawaiian Islands, which is related to the position of the mid-Pacific high, which is related to the surface seawater temperatures, which is related to you know, carbon. So it's all interconnected on s- some percentages, but El Nino and La Nina are absent. They're not related to climate change, except that we're pushing these El Ninos up in temperature. And consequently, we're seeing a lot of extreme weather across the planet with that combination. Now, when we go back to a La Nina, things may settle down just a little bit or other things may take place like drought. So there's a lot to consider here. There's natural variation combined with the overall warming of the planet.
1: Roger, I just read a... Article in the another article in the New York Times about climate just today, where the government is funding at at a billion dollars uh, these 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 factories these plants uh, that are going to do something called air capture, uh, and these are pilot programs. One is ironically going to be run by Occidental Petroleum that is going to suck in the air with giant vacuum cleaners, decarbonize it, and put it back out in the atmosphere. Al Gore uh, says that it's a complete uh, debacle and a boondoggle. Uh, have you read about this? What do you make of that?
3: I I can't really speak to it because I don't know exactly what you're talking about, but I do know that there are ca- carbon capture mechanisms. There was one in Iceland. Uh, I think that's still going, and I think there's several of them in Europe, and I think there's a few in the western U.S. that are actually trying to pull carbon and in creating limestone out of that. Carbon, and then they use that to pave, for example, the uh, the apron, on, you know, off the sides of runways and things like this. I think San Francisco International is one of those uh, that did that. Um, so there is a way of pulling, you know, carbon capture, but we're putting, you know, multitude times amount of carbon as, you know, what we do on a daily basis worldwide. Yeah.
1: Okay, Roger. Uh, I was at a. Community meeting in Montpelier last night from five from six thirty to nine. And there were three hundred and fifty people in the gym at Vermont College of Fine Arts and another two fifty on Zoom. And I had this realization. Not well, there was one comment. Everybody got up and could talk for one minute, and there were a couple of people who said we need to, including V.Perg, we need to blame the oil companies, et cetera, et cetera. But, but for the most part, there. I was surprised at the, the, the sort of uh, we've kind of jumped a space here, you know, where some of us were sort of denying climate change or putting it off and and compartmentalizing around it. Now, everybody in that room realizes that this is here. It's going to happen regardless of party, regardless of ideology, regardless of politics. Everybody in that room uh, realizes that this is going to happen again and we have to do something about it. And we've kind of moved past the stage of, you know, what causes it, uh, why is it happening, etc., to solutions. And I was both I – w- I was curious about that, but I was – it was – I don't know, good at some level because people are moving to uh, what are we going to do about this? And they're not arguing about the politics. Do you have a reaction to that?
3: Well, I mean, I've been talking about climate since 1987, eight, something like that. And yeah. um, I I'm beyond it. <laughs> I've moved on. I think it's a that's a problem for the American uh, Psychiatric Institute. It's not a it's not it's not atmospheric science. It's not meteorology. It's beyond that point. Um, So I'm not even going to go into the denial part. I I don't even mess with it. I don't want to talk about it. i moved on. We got uh, flooding rains that are going to be the problem here on during some summers, maybe in the spring. Um, You know, just think about this. Uh, What if we get an extra juiced up air mass? That then is, and, and by the way, the oceans are, sea surface temperatures are on fire in the Atlantic, and it doesn't look like they're going to go back to cooling anytime soon. Um, what if we get, uh, you know, um, say uh, 1.5 inches precipitable water, which is uh, how much water you'd squeeze out physically out of the atmosphere, juiced up air mass, say in, uh, I don't know, December 25th? Uh, Well, um, would the air temperatures here be cold enough to cause snow? Probably. Um, But you put those combinations together, and now you're talking about a snowstorm that's on a record level that you can't even imagine. So (laughs) there are extremes like that that we have to keep our eyes on, and we have to look out for variability and plan for variability. I think one of the things that I see here in Vermont, most people are – uh, you know, they're identifying the problem. It's like, you know, AA or something. Um, and, okay, what do we do about We have to mitigate it. We have to stop the sources without killing the economy, for sure. But we got to get after it. And there's things we can do individually and also on policy levels. Um, but we also have to adapt to it. And we have to do these two things uh, combined. And we have to, to basically run an economy doing that that 's my answer
1: yeah that 's right that 's right you you can 't and and it 's not like Vermont uh, is going to reduce its climate emissions and have any material impact on worldwide climate emissions or weather so the the task for Vermonters is at the legislature uh, for the congressional delegation and for city governments and select boards is to uh, adapt and get resilient and I guess my qu- next question is. Uh, what's What are the top five resiliency-to-do items on your list, both personal and uh, for the rest of us?
3: Um, is to plan for future floods, like where I live, particularly just on my property myself. Um, my uh, pond-level uh, dam overflow worked. It did not gouge out or erode anything. Um, and we took our 15 inches of July rainfall. And that's good that's resilient however what if it's 20 inches yeah you know not next year or the summer after or somewhere down the road um that could cause a erosion of the spillway which could erode my driveway which could cause a flash flood all by itself like a beaver dam letting go these are all things that we have to start considering the other things to consider are when we swap out culverts to go to the next size up um Maybe in two sizes up if we have the opportunity. Uh, I hate to, you know, take a, a political statement, but the words "build back better" come to mind—not build back the way it used to be, but build back better. Start thinking ahead. Be proactive rather than reactive. Right now, everybody's reactive. We have to think proactively. We have to think about, okay, can we handle that? And then we have to also think about the, its opposite. And this is something nobody talks about here, but. What happens if we have a six months of no rain? It's possible down the road. Yeah. Uh, what happens then? We have trees now that are all dried out and, and, and the fire hazard conditions. And what, hap- what happens if we have a big forest fire? We've had that in the past. It'll happen again. Nobody thinks about that. We have to be proactive in thinking about all these things together.
1: I'm a, I'm a fan of saying that... Uh... The, 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 most of the mistakes of planning a society happen at the Planning Commission and the Zoning Board, uh, the Barry Montpelier Road, Shelburne Road, Williston Road. Uh, you know, all of that impervious parking that we have in Montpelier that should be uh, uh, a sort of pervious surface that allows water to drain into the ground uh I'm reminded of the Pogo cartoon. We have met the enemy and he is us. Uh, We continue to build along the river and and narrow the scope of this river and the Winooski so that it has nowhere to go. I mentioned in the intro that one of the uh, proposals last night at the community meeting that got the most interest and applause was shut down Montpelier High School, move the students to U32, and and let that uh, high school grounds – Become a park to absorb water. And we're going to have to make hard decisions like that coming down the pike here. And I, you know, wonder whether we have the ability to do that.
3: I think the billboard of weather is going to be up there flashing in our faces at night, during the day. And that's what's going to drive us to make the right decisions. The yeah. question has become, are we too late for it and uh... you know i think it's kind of uh, uh... managing the demise at this point in time rather than saying okay we can turn a corner and everything's going to be all right i hate to say that being negative on the other side of that coin is uh, we can drive an economy by doing the right thing and, we, and here in vermont we can also set the examples There's a lot of places that are just like us all across the planet. Right. And a lot of places are doing the right thing and other places are not. So we need to be proactive.
1: Um, I think I can squeeze one call in here. Dave from Richmond, I've got about 30 seconds, so go ahead.
5: Okay, uh, quick one. Um, The uh, recent rainfall in Quebec, has that
0: when the uh, low-pressure system stalled up there, has it helped with the forest fires?
3: Yeah, well, part of the reason why the the forest fires have been taking place up in northern parts of Quebec and all the way back into B.C. is because they've had drought up there. They've had very low rainfall, and that was attributed to the atmospheric rivers that occurred in the West Coast. And, you know, the leg bone's connected to the knee bone, and everything's interconnected like that. Um, Canadian wildfire smoke, some some have asked real quickly, uh, you know, is that a contributor? It is. It actually makes a smaller nuclei to attach moisture to, but... Uh, For the most part, they're all part of the same uh, variability that's taking place across the uh, the planet in the northern hemisphere. And uh, Canada's forest fires are part and parcel about some of the extremes taking place just on the other side of the coin.
1: Thanks for the call. Roger Hill, operational forecaster extraordinaire. Uh, This is not the last time we're going to have you on. We've got to keep talking about this. So thank you for joining us.
3: It's a broad subject. I'd be happy to come back on it.
1: Okay. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Bob Ney from Washington, D.C. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint, and you're listening to WDEV.
0: Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group. We're more than just radio.
1: We're back and we're going to go right to Washington D.C. because we've got a lot of talk lot to talk about with our D.C. correspondent Bob Nay. Welcome to the show.
0: Hey, good morning, Kevin.
1: Okay, Bob, uh there is talk about a prisoner swap between Iran and the United States, but I heard on the radio coming in that those uh, prisoners are not yet out of Iran. They are in a hotel under guard, and the diplomacy wheels continue to, to spin.
0: Yes, uh, this is a story, of course, that's been in the making for a while, just not public. I have, I have actually met Siamak Namazi, one of the prisoners, a, a while back and uh, his father was also detained. But uh, the bottom line is that Iran has uh, released them from the prison, the famous even prison or notorious, I should say, even prison, and they put them on house arrest. That in itself, Kevin, is really good news because the, the conditions in even prison, as we understand it, are absolutely horrific and a lot of potential harm could come to them, especially you know, over the past few years and uh they are under the house arrest they aren't out of Iran yet and there's parts of the deal the United States is not basically talking as much right now as Iran is but um right now there are some details to work out part of it is money which there's 6 billion of Iranian assets that are held in South Korea that's in the account of the central bank of gutter uh, the country of gutter and the Iranians want that and then in some of the articles Kevin, it alludes to the fact there's going to be maybe some Iranians that are in prison here that are going to be swapped also. But that's not yet uh, into detail.
1: Bob, talk to us about diplomacy, because whenever things like this happen and the United States government is uh, very quiet, it's a signal that things are happening and it it might even be a signal that relations between these two countries, uh, which have been on the rocks for decades, there could be something larger going on here. At least that may be in the mind of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken.
0: Well, I'm, it might be, and, and uh, uh, Biden, who was with Obama – was the number one person that could have launched a second nuclear deal because he was there for the first one, which was groundbreaking. And Biden never did that. Uh, In fact, I'm in, in shock. I thought when he became the president, he'd say, "Okay, we're going to go back to the deal that we launched when I was vice president. But he didn't do that. So a lot of that is gone. Iran turned around and elected a more hawkish government, of course, and the clerics got more power than they had before, even though there was an uprising in Iran. So this is a small step. I think this is more of mutual interest. We want the Americans back, uh, the five of them, and the Iranians want their money, and possibly a couple of other prisoners, but in particular, $6 billion that's held there, which is going to be the debate. You know, do do you yield? This is always out there, Kevin. Has nothing to do with Iran. Do you yield to a country and give billions of dollars to get people back, and then they take more in the in the long run? I mean, that's always a question out there. It's the. So in, I, don't, it, I don't see this one as a, a big groundbreaker.
1: It's the inconsistency of uh, global geopolitics. We yes. the American yes. policies. We don't negotiate with terrorists, and yet we do it all the time. We don't pay ransom money, and yet we do. We do. Uh, and yes. uh, it's it's this is just tough tough business, right?
0: It is. And Iran and American relations, I was involved with them. I used to live in Iran, as you know, in 1978 during the revolution. And uh, we've been back and forth with Iran for decades, and it's gotten you know continuously worse now. So I think this is a best-of-interest
1: swap, I'll call it. Bob, the United States Justice Department uh, has has asked for a protective order to uh, sort of regulate the uh, speech coming out of Donald Trump's mouth in the wake of his uh, the third indictment of him. A fourth indictment could be coming from Georgia at any minute. Uh, Where are we? And, And oh, and the government has, let's see, asked for a trial date, I believe, of August 22nd or 28th. Uh, because they want a speedy trial. What's the latest in the Trump indictment?
0: Well, then on the on the other indictment uh, for the uh, you know process of the of January sixth, Special Counsel Jack Smith yesterday is proposing on a start date of January second, twenty twenty four. For that one, you've got one in August. I'm going to you know say he's going to be indicted in Georgia. That, you know that's yet to be set, and then on top of it. They are going to the judge, the Justice Department, through Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, and saying that Trump shouldn't be allowed to say certain things. And uh, Smith said he was saying some things that were intimidating people, you know, that he was going to, quote, go after people. So they're arguing that Trump could get information through his lawyers and use it against potential witnesses. But as far as the free speech you know, aspect of this, they're going to have a hard time to just say Donald Trump can't comment on this because it's in the public eye and let 's face it, Kevin. if Donald Trump doesn 't comment uh, even if he wouldn't do that, which I doubt he will, uh, there would still be tons of surrogates that would be glad to say things out there uh Bob the uh,
1: people are they're not all lying awake at night, but political junkies are trying to figure out where this could go. The most plausible scenario that i i 've seen is that Trump makes a plea deal. Uh, and, it, and agrees not to run for public office again. Uh, the case goes away and Trump doesn't have to run for president and he can always be the guy who was wronged by the US government and he can be a celebrity for the rest of his life dining out on this issue and he doesn't have all the, 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 the headaches of actually running the country. What do you make of that? I think it's the most plausible thing. But then one thing
0: potentially stands in its way, Donald Trump. I mean, you just don't know when he's going to quit. Now, as you know, I went out on the limb here and I still continue to uh, with the stations I do, which is to say he's not going to be running in the convention. I felt that last year, way before this all started to come down with indictments. I just felt something would happen. So it is potentially possible that he just doesn't run, doesn't do a plea deal, or does one, but doesn't do a plea deal, and then the case goes away, you know, anyway, or there's a minor plea deal done after that. I mean, I don't know. One thing's for sure: if he's convicted, they're not going to put a former president with all the security problems in any form of incarceration. That I just that's not going to happen. Exactly. Uh, so there, there's a lot of twists and turns to this, but I do think what you were saying. I mean, it is possible in the end, Trump would do. Mm-hmm. I'll call it a minor plea deal where after he does the deal, he'll say, uh, you know, I did this to spare my family and my businesses. They they spent tens of millions of dollars and look what they got. I mean, you know, he could actually twist that around. And you're right. He could live off of that forever.
1: Yeah. Uh, Bob, one last thing. We, we continue to suffer in central Vermont here from massive flooding and the, and the flood damage and the, the business recovery. And I was at a community meeting last night where the, the politics of climate change have kind of disappeared. And regardless of our politics, we're all kind of saying, okay, it's real. It's here. It's going to happen again. How do we live with this? Can you take us into your old uh, uh, caucus at the Republican uh, Party and and tell us what's going on around the reality? I mean, the, the fire in Hawaii, the flooding in Vermont, the, it's all over the world now, the heat domes in the south of America. How does a Republican Party that has denied the existence of climate change deal with the reality of this weather?
0: Well, I think that, you know, the party eventually is going to have to deal with it. Here's part of the problem with this. The face of solving climate change has come into the form of electric cars and you know, I mean, I, I hate to be trite on this, but it's true. You know, it's every, well, the electric cars are going to solve everything. Right. There's a bigger, bigger world picture problem. Uh, as, you know, I've traveled to multi, many, many countries over the course of my lifetime. And one of the problems, and I went to Japan, uh, the, the Kyoto Treaty that was signed in Kyoto, Japan, it, you know, it involved all uh, the nations of the world except for India and Mexico, you know, and, and China and other polluters. So, for years, people said, well, we're not signing that. The United States shouldn't. In fact, I think it went down like 98 to 0 in this U.S. Senate at one point in time. So there's never been anything that's been an effective compromise worldwide that's involved, you know, all the polluting countries that need to be involved. Of course, then poor countries, how do they pay for it? So that's that's part of the, I think, the psyche in the Republicans' minds, too, is well, if the whole world's not in it, you know, what are we going to do? Now on the other hand, I have a lot of progressive friends that have said it doesn't matter we need to do the right thing well, unfortunately, with the way there's viciousness in other governments, if we do the right thing, other governments will say that's great now they're going to shut everything down and we're going <laughs> to take up the slack yeah. and that's another psyche in the Republican mind all the time if you know if the world's not in it, but I think there's less deniers now. You look at the weather in Vermont, you look at what's happening, you know uh, wildfires. Uh, you know the whole weather situation around the world india is suffering i have a lot of friends there and horrible monsoon rains that are just destroying highways and landslides so when you look at that i think it's a reality now the question is how do you you know how do you approach that and how do you you know make it uh, make it better but i think more republicans are recognizing it's a reality the question is how do you get there to solve it and that's the big debate that's going to rage on
1: uh 30 seconds uh Joe Manchin it says he's toying with becoming an independent.
0: Uh-huh. Known Joe Manchin a long, long time. Uh, I just was telling my sister, who's in Wheeling, West Virginia, yesterday, if he wants to go for the United States Senate, he will win. I, I predict he will. He, he's, he's the last Democrat standing in West Virginia. But he is toying with this, and it would be very fascinating because with the situation of Donald Trump, and if you look at, you know, thirty nine percent of the people with Trump and then thirty nine percent of the people with Biden. After everything has happened with Trump, they're still close. And then you look at a if you have a strong third party candidate and the fact that a lot of independents are this is toxic toxic this race for them, this is the first time I think in modern history if you had Joe Manchin that, you know, he could take a lot of votes. I mean a lot. Now if you got to thirty three percent and one, oh uh, and plus, looking at the Electoral College would be a trip, you know, on that election, three way. But on top of it, it would be a very powerful statement, I think, if Joe Manchin ran with the independent ticket.
1: Okay, Bob Nay, we pack a lot into 15 minutes every week. Uh, we're grateful to you for coming. Thank you very much. Have Thank a good you. week.
0: Thank you, Kevin. Bye-bye.
1: Okay. Bob Nay in D.C. We're going to come back with Derek Brower from Seven Days. We're going to talk about the Quirky Pet Store. In downtown Montpelier. It's a it's a really dramatic story, actually. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We are back, and our guest is Derek Brower from Seven Days for a weekly chat with the best reporters from that wonderful newspaper. Uh, Derek, it was really fun to see your story on the quirky pet because those of us who live and work in Vermont and Montpelier get to see those darn dogs every day, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the, the, the the interplay between uh, the owners of that store about whether to reopen in the wake of the flood, I found to be some of the most interesting writing and reporting I've seen in weeks. So thanks. Uh, but tell us about it. Tell us about uh, Sindra Connison and Richard Shear. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Kevin, for having me on to talk about them.
6: Yeah, I mean, they've uh, this couple um, mainly Sindra has been running uh, the Quirky Pets uh, uh, for 12 years now. Um, she opened the shop in 2011, uh, right around the time that uh, Tropical Storm Irene came through, actually, um, where uh, when they only got water in the in the basement. But um, you know, she's she's tried to make the store, and I think succeeded in making this uh, pet store unlike any other um, that you'll find. I mean, she for one she uh she sources all of her products uh from american uh manufacturers and she's tried to create an atmosphere uh that is quite memorable and that plays off of uh the, the sort of myths and fantasies and feelings of uh, vermont country stores and general stores um but uh but for pets so it's it's got this whimsical element and of course as you mentioned um there um, their sheep dogs that look like uh, look like mop dogs uh, have uh, been mascots for the store uh, ever since uh, ever since she opened um, there. So I, it's um, it's become a little bit of a you know as I understand it, a, it's, it's become a small but memorable uh, tourist destination in, in Montpelier as well among pet lovers as, as well as serving uh, locals who are uh, discerning and and you know what they want to um, the products they want to feed their pets.
1: There is a. Really compelling uh, Jeb Wallace Broder photo in your story, where the two of them are outside their store, up to their knees in in wastewater flood water. Um, did you did you actually get to their house to sit down with them at the table and actually talk this through? Yeah. Um-
6: That's, uh, you know, they are running the business right now online, at least from from their home on on Luma Street. So, uh, yeah, I I spent a couple hours uh, around their uh, dining room table with them talking through uh, the considerations and, uh, you know, and and anxieties and hopes they have uh, around going forward. Uh, And that that sort of formed the heart of my reporting. And the story was just uh, talking to them uh, about uh, about these issues um, that they're dealing with. I, I also met them. Um, on, a, on a different day at the at the store which is um, you know still uh, in need of really extensive uh repairs from from the flooding there that, that, there are... that photo you that yeah that go photo ahead. you mentioned that yeah yeah that, that photo you mentioned that jeb uh, jeb took that was from um, monday evening uh, when the waters were still rising uh, as, as they explained to me they had um, they actually closed the shop. Uh, Cinder had closed the shop that afternoon because it was raining so heavily and nobody was shopping. Um, but then, then they actually went back down uh, together to check on it when they realized what what really was happening. And uh, and at that point, uh, I don't think water was fully in the store actually, even though it, the road is totally covered and up to their knees, as you said. Um, but they they sort of knew at that point that uh, that they were in trouble and. As they relayed to me, um, Sindra declared that she was going to go home and uh, and have a glass of wine, and and figure out what to do next in the morning.
1: You know, I, as someone who's been married for thirty seven years, I just love the way in your story you 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 play you you let us inside their home and watch them go back and forth as a longtime married couple figuring out whether to reopen this where richard with his financial mind is saying this is crazy and uh Sindra's saying you know it's this is what i do this is what keeps me uh excited about life and i'm gonna do it and they kind of decide right there at the table
6: yeah yeah that's that's exactly right and that is really what drew me to them and uh why i thought they would be uh uh, a fascinating uh, sort of case study in this, and 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 looking at these questions that so many people are, are asking right now. Um, you know, they it's the, the quirky pet is not an essential business in the sense that a grocery store or even a hardware store uh, certainly is, but uh, but you know it, it has this kind of um, uh, uh, emotional and imaginative meaning to them, certainly as well as uh, to the town. Uh, too and and I and I wanted to look at um, that sort of business as well. I mean these these are the kinds of ventures that give uh, that that help give communities character, and that's you know it's while it's a little more intangible. Um, it is it is an important thing that people are thinking about. Right now.
1: I was at a meeting, as I've said on the show today, of about uh, 350 people uh, at the Vermont College of Fine Arts, with another 250 online on Zoom talking about these issues in the future, and there's a fascinating thing going on. You know, there's all sorts of community pride, uh, optimism, and, and determination, but there's also a huge amount of trauma, uh, and, and most of these business owners at some point, after the adrenaline of the first two weeks of, of rescue and repair, they kind of hit a wall of, of physical and emotional exhaustion, uh and they have to go home and go to sleep for a few days and then sort of start to think rationally again. And, and I I don't know where Sindra is in that uh process, but I see all these business owners going through that process.
6: Yeah, that's a that's a really great point. I, I think it had there is a moment that I describe in the story when when the adrenaline did sort of Subside, and and she realized that uh, you know her her declaration to reopen what that meant tangibly was weeks and months of of uncertainty and anxiety and sitting at home and trying to um, run this this business that is so tied to its sense of place out you know out of off of her computer, and um, that's when she said that uh, you know it started to really feel overwhelming for the first time uh, was when she was sitting down and. And working on these spreadsheets of, of products that she needs to buy and sell um, online, and and you you make a good point too that this is you know I, when I when I first approached them I I, I actually had the thought that uh, perhaps I should follow them over weeks and months and capture that whole arc, the ups and downs uh, of this process, um, but uh, in talking to my editors we decided to. Um, uh, to run the story now. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that ended up working because this was a couple that, that really has, uh, that, that really made its decision and, 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 staked, you know, sort of staked its flag in the ground very publicly. And so they were, um, you know, they, they've thought through a lot of the stuff already. And I think it was, I, 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 thought it, uh, interesting to hear. And I hope to read about, um, the, the thought process, and uh, uh, as you've mentioned, the, this, all of the sort of conflicting impulses. Um, you know, you that know, they're, they're you dealing with.
1: You quote uh, in your story, Jen Roberts, the co-owner of Onion River Outdoors, and uh, I'm a customer over there, and I've I've talked to her and her husband Kip about this many times, and she is she is publicly talking about uh, being unable to imagine that. That all of these businesses will come back. And, uh, it, that's kind of buried in the, you know, I think in the media, we, we, a lot of us look we look for the optimism, we look for the, the good story, the inspirational story, but buried deep within all this is there is a, um, a, a dark realization by a lot of these people, uh, be, you know, uh, uh, my, my buddy Glenn at the, at Capital Copy, uh, who's said he's not coming back. Mr. Z's Pizza, they're not coming back. And, and Jen gives voice to that. And it's in your story that uh, this town's going to change. Um, and, uh, a lot of these businesses are not going to make it.
6: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really interesting to hear, um, to, to hear you, uh, talk about that. I mean, I, I got this one narrow window of one business that is really resolute and 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 in some ways i think you know kind of kind of defiant um, in in their approach here i mean i think they really made a point that we're going to do this in the exact same location that we've been we're not going to change uh, we're not going to change that that aspect of what we do and um, we may we may have to adapt and the story does get into some of their ideas of what they think adaptation means for them um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they are placing their bet that, uh, it will come back. And I think, um, you know, it, it's, it's absolutely an open question, the extent to which that will be successful or, or the, the realities that they and others are, are, are just beginning to kind of run up against.
5: Well,
1: Derek Brower, uh, thank you for joining us. Please send a message to Paula Routley and everybody else at Seven Days that, uh, to keep these flood stories coming, because as, uh, we can't afford all of us to sort of walk away, uh, and I, it's going to get harder and harder. Uh, the, you know, the, the out-of-state TV cameras have gone, and, uh, and it's going to get harder and harder to, to sort of uh, shine a light on this. But this is going to be a long slog for communities all over the state, and thanks to Seven Days for covering it. So uh, we'll see you down the road, and thanks for your reporting.
6: Yeah, thanks for your interest, Kevin. It was great to talk
1: to you. Okay, Derek Brower, uh, quiet but mighty. As a reporter for Seven Days, you can get the uh, you can see that story about the quirky pet at 7daysvt.com. You can uh, get the paper version, which I like to do, and uh, spend a good amount of time going through it. The job ads are great. The personals are fantastic, uh, and the I Spy stuff where. You know, people send little love notes to each other. Also a great feature. And Paula Routley's, uh, sometime weekly column in the, in the beginning is also a great new addition. Uh, couldn't do this without seven days. We're going to continue shining a light on this flood because it's, uh, hurt and, uh, inspired and, uh, affected us in so many ways. We are back. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, your host on Wednesdays and Fridays. Just a couple of housekeeping notes. I'll be back Wednesday. We're going to try to continue our on-the-ground live flood coverage. We've done Montpelier. We've done Barry. Uh, and Where I go out into the field on Wednesday and uh, sit down in the town and talk to everybody in town. I'd love your suggestions. I'm thinking about Cabot, Plainfield, uh, uh, Johnson. Uh, so many towns affected. So uh, uh, that's plan- that, that, that show is still uh, being planned. But uh, we'll, see, we'll see where it takes us. But uh, we, we're learning a lot by going into the field. Uh, before we uh, talk about some more news, let's go to the phones. We have Michael from Waitsfield. Michael, you're on the line. Welcome to the show.
7: Yeah, good morning. It's a very important show. Uh, you know, I su- I survived. Uh, sur- not survived. Surveyed some of the damage. It's where it happened. It's unbelievable, but still, it's. I think ninety-seven percent of this state of Vermont is is open for business and in good shape. Right. And we really have we have to find ways to raise money, and lots of people. I get calls and my friends get calls from their friends out of state. They think they think Vermont is still underwater. water. There's there's too much publicity about it is what you say is true. It's a catastrophe, but it's it's not good for us to, to think that, that you can't come here on vacation and 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 enjoy Vermont. So I think you realize that but but you know bad news sells. Nobody wants to hear good news. But but I think I got a way that we could raise a lot of money. We could get a lot more business up here. We have a group of people that are ski pass uh, buyers from from Mount Snow to Jay Peak. They love Vermont. They come when it's twenty below. They have disposable income. Why can't, the gov- why can't the governor write write up an email about what our problems is? How we they can support us by coming here August, foliage be record out turns of, of of tourists that know and love vermont and and have money but we have to direct it directly to them they have, it, it should be sent out by all the individual ski areas they have this, the email addresses of all their customers and and we know that they want to support vermont but we have to make it more aware to them i think it's a good idea i don't know why it's it, it's not done
1: Michael, you're making two points, both of which I agree with. Gosh, Vermont is so – I mean, Montpelier is, is is a tougher case. But, you know, Waitsfield, uh, Lawson's Finest is open for a sip of sunshine. Uh, the, the Valley's – So is 97%. Yeah, the yeah. Valley's doing great. And I noticed, by the way – and I agree with your uh, – the outreach to those who love Vermont, who come here from out of state, of which I was one when I was a kid – there's disposable income there. I, I, I was at this community meeting last night in Montpelier, and one thing I looked around the room and saw was there was a lot of money in that room. Uh, there's, there's, you know, philanthropy is alive and well, uh, well here. Uh, people who come here have disposable income. I agree with you 100%. I, I wanted, Michael, to ask you a quick question. I, knew, I heard the other day that the village store in Waitsfield is for sale. Is that true?
7: Yeah, definitely for sale. Troy is a great owner. He had his 17 years. Uh, Retail business is a lot of hard work, and he has other obligations. So uh, he's going to sell it to the right person. That's one thing for sure about Troy. He 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 is going to interview these people, you know, night and day. So I don't think we have any any worry about it. You know, changing hands from. From the person who I believe is the per- is the perfect owner, because he's going to find another perfect owner.
1: And you know, Michael, you raise so, a real you raise a really good point that I believe in, which is we can't be afraid of change. Um, you know, there we're afraid that downtown Montclair is not going to come back the way it was. Well. You know, it, we we may be able to find find better ways to be downtown Montpelier. We may be able to redesign the way we live in Waitsfield and Warren and Montpelier and Barry to be more resilient and uh, more uh, not so prone to flooding. And uh, we can. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. What you say is 100 percent true, but I'm afraid of it.
7: What about what happened? What happened with Irene? We had the same scare just recently. And uh, now I you know talk everything's got to be all utilities got to be on the second floor and all this kind of business. It should have happened. Yeah, the, all the rebuilding and money that we spent is wasted money. It just floated away. We knew this storm was going to come back again. It's near a river. It's it's got to come back. Tough talk. You know, I, I
5: don't t- tough talk
1: know. for Michael. Michael, right. I'm here in your accent. Ax- you have a little bit of an accent, which tells me you were not born here. I'm 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 from New you Jersey. Know, I'm from New years. Jersey. So where are you from?
7: I've been here fifty years. I lived my first twelve years in uh, uh, New York on the borderline between Queens and Brooklyn. Then go. I lived in Florida through uh, schooling and college. Then I came back to New York, but I've been in Vermont for 50 years.
3: I love
1: so, it. Um,
7: you, you know, um,
1: I love it, but I love I love hearing the Brooklyn accent. It's still there.
7: Okay. Well, it, all I know is the, the industry of tourism is very important and not spoken enough in, in, in Vermont. Most of the talk you read about is looking for businesses to come here. We have a business here. It's tourism. We got people from Baltimore to to Montreal, millions and millions of people, that that just be filling this place up. I think double in the summer from what it is now. We do have a good winter business, but I think we need more more promotion. We got a lot to sell. Um, I, I don't I don't know, and especially now, I I I am on. Um, I do ski. And I'm on the mailing list of the ski areas that I ski at, that I have passes at. I have not seen one thing from them about how how their customers could, could support could, uh, could support for Vermont not by making donations. Donations are great if you can't come, but if you can come here and and do a little vacationing, that means a lot. Yeah. But I, yeah. I don't understand why all these people are pre-marketed. They're qualified to come. They want to come. Yeah. They need an incentive. Michael, okay. I took too much of your time.
1: I love it. Yeah. No, thanks for calling okay. in. And I love a little, I love a little Brooklyn uh, and Queens. It's, it's, uh, I mean, I'm from Jersey, so we thought people from Brooklyn and Queens were, uh, you know, they lived to like a million miles away when in fact we were just neighbors. So thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and. Continue to take your calls, and I've got some things to talk about as well. The number is 244-1777. You can email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. We take your calls, your questions, your comments, uh, especially about the flooding. We're going to stay on this story because its uh, it, is, it uh, doesn't affect us all, but it's affecting a lot of us. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. Am I going to Thunder Road this weekend? Danny, was that Saturday? Are They're promoting Saturday's race. I've never been to Thunder Road. And I don't let the phones all light up with people complaining, okay, that I've never been to Thunder Road, okay, that I'm the electric car driving guy from East Montpelier, but I've never been, okay? Have I been to the beer tent at uh, the Tunbridge Fair? Absolutely. Many many times, I'm not sure why we still call it the beer tent because it's not actually a tent; it's a it's a hall. And uh, but I don't know. But I think back in the old days when things were pretty raunchy at the Tunbridge World's Fair, uh, I think the beer was served in a tent. But uh, now it's under the sort of grandstand in the uh, where they do the where they do the uh, musical concert, uh, and it it gets pretty rowdy in there. But you know I. I've got to go to Thunder Road. I've just got to go. And, you know, maybe I can sit with Ken Squire at, at a Thunder Road race. But uh, we'll see. I will let everybody know when I do my first Thunder Road uh, visit. Maybe I can sit with the governor. That would be fun. Um, okay. Uh, we're going to inaugurate a new uh, segment uh, coming up, uh, I'm, I'm trying to find ways to, to stay with this flood story in a way that does not bore the listeners to tears, and uh, but also give this story the, the weight uh, that it deserves. And so one thing we're going to do is we're going to follow on a regular basis the ups and downs of a store in Montpelier called Bailey Road. My friend Sarah DeFelice Felice uh, runs that store. Uh she was she's right there on Main Street at the intersection of State and Main, like everybody on that block. Uh her store was destroyed and uh, she is determined to come back uh and she is uh doing a whole range of things uh to come back. And I want to follow those. And so she's agreed. I talked to her last night at the community meeting. She's agreed to come on the show on Friday. She'll, she'll, she'll start next Friday. She's unavailable today and we're just going to check in with her on a regular basis to see how she's doing. But here's what she's done. I mean, her, her store was destroyed, as I said, filled with mud. They have it cleaned out. Um, but she did a couple of things right away. She realized she needed to generate revenue. And so, she immediately had a flood sale down at Caledonia Spirits on uh, on Barry Street in Montpelier. And as I said before on this show, I I went down there and I've never seen. Uh, I didn't know there were that many shoppers for clothes in in all of the Montpelier area. The place was jammed, and she was selling flood damage stuff, stuff that uh, you know summer stuff that no longer is appropriate for fall, uh, household goods, et cetera. Uh, but you know, she'd clearly been up all night. She had washed these items, cleaned them, dry, cleaned them, whatever it took. And, uh, she had this sale and it was a massive success and a bit of a party, uh, for her fellow merchants who came. I remember seeing Claire Benedict from bear pond books coming in the door. And she told me it was the first time she'd taken a shower in several days. Uh, and I think, you know, if Montpelier, Barry, and these towns are going to recover in, in anywhere near the, the way that uh, they were in the past, uh, it's going to be on the shoulders of people like Sarah DeFelice and Bailey Road. And that's why we're going to check in with her and, and keep up with her story. Another thing she did, she immediately went on Instagram, the social media site, and had a bundle sale uh in which she bundled together groups of of clothing items, kitchen accessories and things and sold them. And uh my wife and I went on the it was a live sale, it was kind of like a live auction online. And uh you know, Sarah's figuring this stuff out and uh she and and here's a third thing she's done. She has established well, she's got her online store. And you can go there, you can get there by going to baileyroadvt.com. Uh and it's a great place to be while, as she says on her website, uh while the brick and mortar shop in Montpelier is being rebuilt. But here's something else she's done. Sarah's from Northfield and she has opened in in a in a the, the Greenlight Real Estate folks right in downtown Northfield, right on the green there, have donated to her uh space for her to uh open up a, a warehouse. And this is sort of, so Sarah's basically opened up a warehouse to store all of her inventory. Um, and she's opened up a, a retail uh, store in that space. And that'll be open at 9 East Street in Northfield. It's right next to uh, the Good Measure uh, Brewery, the coffee shop, and the Good Measure Pub, which is becoming my new favorite place to be. Because if you can't go to, uh, if you can't go to the, the, the pubs, uh, in downtown Montpelier, uh, you can go down in Northfield and go to Scott Kerner's, uh, Good Measure, uh, pub and brewery down there. I gotta tell you, the Poke Bowl and the, and the burger, oh, to die for. There's a rice bowl with, uh, curried chicken down there that, and I'll tell you, you have that with one of the, uh, Good Measure, uh, brews on tap. It's fantastic. Uh, but Sarah, has uh, so go down to Sarah's uh, warehouse retail shop in Northfield at 9 East Street then go get a bite to eat and a beer at the at the pub. It's a great afternoon. Uh, I'll tell you when she's open. Uh, she's open at 11 o'clock today. Uh, she calls it the warehouse and uh, she's open every day there except Mondays um, and and my point is this is this is going to be a long haul for Montpelier. And all the other towns, uh, not everybody's going to come back the way they were. Um, my buddies at Bear Pond Books, I saw Rob at the, uh, at the meeting last night. I'm getting together my, my list to order, uh, books as soon as, as soon as they're ready. Uh, it's, you know, we're going to have to help these people come back. Uh, and as I said on a couple of shows, if you go into when Capitol Grounds or, or, uh, you know, even if even if somebody's already open, like I was in Espresso Bueno, the coffee shop in Barry yesterday. You know, if you're going to pay two fifty for a cup of coffee, or four bucks or five bucks for a coffee and a muffin, just round it up a dollar. It's not going to kill you. Uh, and it, as I've said many times, it's the difference between these places being there and not being there. And if these places are not going to be there, uh, we're all going to be diminished. So. So as I said, we're gonna we're gonna stay with uh Sarah D. Felice and Bailey Road uh through their trials and tribulations. It's not always gonna be pretty. If you look, if you look at her Instagram feed, you can find her uh on Instagram at Bailey Road VT. Just hit the search button and type in Bailey Road, it'll come up. There's a video on there of Sarah in her car uh recording what they call a reel. Um uh, talking about where she is, what she's doing, her determination to come back, and her gratitude toward uh, everybody in the community who continues to support her and the other merchants. And she's in tears the whole, pretty much the whole time. And it's a sobering, it's a sobering, sobering uh, uh, video to watch. But you are taken by her determination uh, to to come back. And uh, I think we can all do our part in helping them, in helping them do so. Uh, we've uh, we, we've done a lot on this show today. Uh, Roger Hill, as he always does, laid it out, and uh, the bottom line, the headline from that, and and we had a lot of great calls, uh, and 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 I'm just fascinated by. The, the politi- I'm a political junkie, so I, I just love being an observer to what's going on politically. And I'm fascinated by whether it was the meeting in Montpelier last night, the calls that we're getting on the radio, uh, and online, and, and the, the way we're seeing this reported in the media and, and watching our politics. It, I kind of feel like the, the climate change uh, uh, argument about w- what's causing it is it may not be over, but we've leapt ahead, uh, to how are we going to live with this? And it's almost like, uh, you know, the pet, it's almost like there's a, a bit of a, a path forward to, for us to get through the pettiness of our politics, especially down in Washington, of course. Um, and we're going to argue about the solutions. I know that, you know, I just got hit up on Twitter by my, uh, buddy at the Vermont, cha- at the, uh, Lake Champlain Chamber of Commerce. I invited him on the show to talk about this. He said, I've been talking about resilience for a long time. Nobody listened. The legislature didn't want to listen. All they wanted to do was listen to talk about carbon emissions. So we'll take that on, on another show. But for now, we got to go. Uh, I, it's it's been a great show. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks to our guests. If you want to be a guest on this show, drop me a line, Two four four one seven seven seven. The show becomes a podcast at WDEVradio.com. You're going to want to listen to the Roger Hill portion. You can find me everywhere, KevinKLS.com. I've got a newsletter. I've got a podcast. I'll be back Wednesday, uh, depending. I don't know where we're going to be yet. But we will uh, be somewhere. I'd like to go to Johnson because, boy, they really got wrecked up there. Uh, we'll, we'll see what we can do. Uh, but we'll be back Wednesday uh, broadcasting directly from somewhere, uh, as we did in Barry and Montpelier, as always. We'll talk politics in Vermont and the nation. My garden, which is exploding. And everything else on my mind and yours, our show is produced by me, engineered today, made possible by Lee Cattell in Hour 1 and Danny McGivrigan in Hour 2. Thanks to all the folks at WDEV as always. And thank you all for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here Wednesday on Vermont Viewpoint Live Radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV.